This is Christy, and we have merchandise. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com and check out amazing t-shirts, mugs, stickers. If you love great quotes, we have some of our favorites. If you love silliness, check out our mascot, Brain Man. Go to howtolovelitpodcast.com, clip on the shop button, and find something for that person who needs to be reminded that we are fashioned creatures but half made up. Mary Shelley said that. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Christy Shriver, and we're here to discuss books that have changed the world and have changed us. And I'm Gary Shriver, and this is the How to Love Lit podcast. This is our final episode in our four-part series of Kate Chopin's masterpiece, The Awakening. Uh, there is a lot layered in such a short book. I mean, in episode one, we discussed Chopin's life. We introduced the concept of local color, and we arrived really on the colorful shores of a summer resort village in Grand Isle, Louisiana. Uh, episode two, we spent time on Grand Isle. We uh, met Edna and Adele, Mr. Pontier, Robert Lebrun, and Madame Ries. We watched Edna awaken to an inner awareness that she had never understood before. And we see this awakening occur through uh, a physical sensuality she's never experienced before. She learns to swim. <laughs> Edna Pontier leaves Grand Isle a very different person than how she arrived at the beginning of her summer. In episode three, we start with chapter 18 as Edna arrives back home in New Orleans. Uh, nothing would be the same. It's amazing how swimming can change you. <laughs> she cannot conform to the roles that she's previously played, and she does not fit into the culture, and she doesn't even want to anymore. And, she abandons uh, almost all that she'd previously identified with and experiments with many different lifestyles, the arts, the horses, the races, men. Ultimately, she decides to leave the, uh, ritz, the ritzy Esplanade Street and take up residence in what she calls her pigeon house just around the corner. And today, we begin with Chapter 26, and we follow Edna's progression through to the end of the book. Well, stylistically, let's talk about that for a second. Chopin wrote a novel which we call a realistic novel. I mean, the story, the settings, the characters truthfully represent the real world. Grand Isle really exists, and the resort there existed in the way that she described it. The same is true for Esplanade Street. The details are accurate as Chopin represents the reality of the great city of New Orleans as she knew it there at the turn of the century. The French language, the customs, the way people behave, the races, the music, even the song, Ah, si tu savat, it's a real song. All of these things reflect reality. However, as we get farther towards the end of the novel, and as the reader gets more submerged, really into Edna's perspective and maybe even her you know, consciousness, things get more romanticized. Objects that seemed like just objects at the beginning are now understood. Maybe there's something metaphorical here. These are symbols. We notice that objects are repeating and evolving. That's what we call motifs. In other words, the objects are still what they have always been, but they're taking on more than just what they originally meant in the first place. We under That's how we understand symbols, and symbols we know are symbols when we, we identify them in two ways. The first way is when an author spends an inordinate amount of time describing something that otherwise really shouldn't be that important. 
A second way is when we notice that there's the same object that it keeps showing up over and over again. Here's a good example from the book that I want to highlight, the concept of music. It's described in detail, but notice how much music there is in this book. And notice how much time you know, she spends describing it. There's music in the beginning, and there's music in the middle, and there's music at the end. It means something. But what? It's up to us to draw the conclusions on what is going on here. The birds work in exactly the same way. There's birds on the first page. Then there's birds in the middle. And there is a bird at the very end. (laughs) It means something. Food and meals in general and literature are always symbolic. Meals are archetypal symbols for fellowship. And notice how Chopin develops this. She uses meals as a way to sort of track what's going on with Edna and her relationships throughout the story. If we follow the symbols, we can understand the universality of the story. The biggest symbol, of course, is the sea. And by the end of the book, it's going to take on this mythic proportion. The sea, as we pointed out in the beginning, in this story, it's personified. It's alive. But by the end, if we look carefully, we see in the description of the ocean, it's described as a serpent. What does that mean? Well, it's a biblical symbol. But even in the Bible, a serpent is not just one thing. It's not just the Bible that alludes, uh, that's alluded to here in the ocean. Edna is called Venus, and Venus emerges from the sea in mythology. What's that about? Although everything is still very realistic. I mean, there's no superheroes. There's no magic. We don't have pirates. There's no fairies of any kind. Nobody's flying around. But somehow, these symbols begin to feel allegorical to the point that at the end, you're almost, not really, but you're almost wondering, is Edna a real person or is she kind of a type of a person? That's a little bit of a hyperbole, but not by much. So today, as we end our discussion, I'd like to see this book as indeed political, because it certainly is. There is a political side to it for sure, but that's just the surface. It goes beyond that, and it asks questions that are indeed very personal. But before we do that, let's before we talk about the personal, let me say that. Let's address the political, because Chopin was, by her very essence, a woman in the vein of what the Europeans of her day called the new woman of the fin de siècle. That's French, sort of, my way of saying it. <laughs> Better than mine. Gary, Chopin was a well-read French speaker and a reader of French, and she was very attuned to things that were political and social and the literary movements of her day. But we, this far away, are not. Uh, I've learned a lot about new women. Uh, actually, my, my frame of reference comes from Downton Abbey. But, <laughs> but that may not be you know the full picture. So talk to us a little bit about this term. What is a new woman, and what does it mean, the term fin de siècle? besides the obvious translation of end of the century. Uh, It's an interesting uh, social concept. The term new woman was actually an invention of the British media. It's not an American thing. And you're right. It's showcased in a lot of period pieces. And um, here's one tell. A new woman might be the one riding a bicycle as a display (laughs) of her independence. Me, me, a bicycle. It's funny. Well, uh, you'd have to be the, the the first to get your hands on one, I'm sure. But but think about it. Just being able to wear clothes that would allow you to ride it would be liberating. I and agree. Anyway, the, the term first came out uh, in the Woman's Herald in August 1893. To use the newspaper's words, woman suddenly appears on the scene of man's activities as a sort of new creation and demand a share in the struggles, the responsibilities, and the honors of the world in which until now she has been a cipher, end quote. <laughs> a you cipher. Know, so uh, this feminist vision, as you can imagine, uh, was highly controversial and threatening to the status quo. And among other things, it involved a new definition of uh, female sexuality. And some considered this alone to be the beginning of the apocalypse. And uh, the world was certainly turning upside down. And 
the mainstream media portrayed the, the new woman as a mannish brute towering over men and someone who's extremely um, hideous and monstrous and something most women obviously would not want to embrace. But, you know, it's very propagandistic. But, sure. Uh, opponents were making caricatures as negative as they possibly could of these um independent women uh, and they were wearing masculine clothes and pursuing unwomanly pursuits like sports and politics and higher education how dare they that doesn't sound unwomanly to me <laughs> oh that's not the end of it uh, there was a lot of cigar smoking in oh, those pictures in that day i mean these were meant to be negative images and uh the women would have angry faces maybe with their hands on their hips scowling at the reader but in the feminist media the new woman was portrayed very, very differently. Uh, the traits were the exact, exact same, but they were portrayed in a positive way. And the new woman in these publications was portrayed as a social warrior defending her home, using her political positions and, and social standings to complement traditional household duties. And the idea being a, a new woman didn't neglect her family. She was a better provider and defender of self and of her family because of it. And you know, the main difference between these new visions of a new woman had to do with uh, what you do with the idea of motherhood. You know, the feminist media created images of women incorporating traditionally male domains, not necessarily excluding motherhood. You know, the big political interests that stand out were women's suffrage and property rights during that time period. And women were interested in careers outside the home and higher education. And women's uh, periodicals emerged with really large readerships. And not all those readers were women. Women were publicly and in writing asking other women to openly express their views on contemporary life. And that was a new thing. And the question of the era was, what is the role of the new woman? Um, I quote the North American Review here. The great problem of the age is how to emancipate woman and preserve motherhood. So in the 1890s, the new woman wanted to be uh, what some called a respected radical. And of course, uh, you know, we don't have to get far into the awakening to see these political and social concerns embedded in Chopin's work. And obviously, you know, as a mother of many children, that would have been forefront in her mind. Yeah. Can you remind me how many children she had? Seven. Ooh. And a single mom working. So that's, that's a basketball team with two <laughs> exactly. subs. Exactly. I mean, she is a voice speaking to this socio-political movement in her time. And She's commenting in a serious way and from a serious perspective on women's struggles to speak. Edna struggles to speak for herself really at every point in the book. Interestingly enough, though, Edna doesn't have a mother, and, and Chopin points this out, and really doesn't know what to do with motherhood. She has no personal role model. I noticed that, uh, and it matters psychologically when we watch Edna vacillate at the end of the book. And Chopin created a character of extreme economic privilege for her day, yet still Edna has terrible trouble articulating even to herself what she wants uh, out of life or what she even feels. Um, the reasons for this are not really simply resolved. I mean, Chopin seems to suggest to me that for sure that there are are political and social and cultural adjustments that uh, must be made giving women more rights, but that's just one part of it. I mean, Chopin illustrates this from the vantage point of a woman, and there must be a redefinition of respectable womanhood that, that really is not so polarizing. And here there are only two versions of respectable women in the book, Madame Rees and the other Adele Ratignolle. Well, exactly. And by chapter 26, Edna clearly understands that she's not one or the other. But that gives her an inarticulate lostness. Where does Edna fit in? I mean, she tells Madame Reese that she's moving out of her home. And for a brief moment, you know, you're left to wonder, oh, she's got to have some great plan, some radical plan. Except she doesn't. And her reasons, as she explains them, don't even make sense. They're emotional. She's literally moving, and I quote, just two steps away in a little four-room house around the corner. It looks so cozy, so inviting, a restful whenever I pass by, and it's for rent. I'm tired looking after that big house. 
It never seemed like mine anyway, like home. It's too much trouble. I have to keep too many servants, and I'm tired of bothering with it. I mean, that's just crazy talk. <laughs> and she goes on to say, you know, when Madame Reese doesn't buy that explanation, the house, the money that provides for it, they're not mine. Isn't that reason enough? So obviously these are not reasons enough. What is she getting out of the move? When Madame Reese asks how her husband reacted to this plan, this is her response. I have not told him. I only thought of it this morning. <laughs> uh, that strikes me as a little bit impulsive. Oh, it's so impulsive. And I'm ashamed to say I actually know people that would do things like this. Um, but, you know, this is the other side of it. This is not my vision of a real pioneer of the woman's movement, not of today, not of the turn of the century. I mean, this is not a woman like Elizabeth Cady Stanton. This is not Isadora Duncan. This is not Clara Burton. This is not Mary Wallenscroft. None of these women are like Edna Pontelier. (laughs) (laughs) Well, no, they are not. And Edna has some deficiencies for sure, uh, and they express themselves in various ways. And uh, one of these is expressed through this confusion of passion with relationship, like we see with Robert Lebrun. She indulges in fantasy, which is fun, of course, uh, and the idea of Robert is a wonderful fantasy. I know, and this is something else that frustrates me personally with Edna. I keep wanting to say, snap out of it, child. (laughs) I mean, Chauvin builds this tension, but she never lets Edna snap out of it. And even though the title of this book is The Awakening, and it is true, Edna does awaken. She awakens continuously throughout the book to new realities, There's another sense, paradoxically, really, that she's also always asleep, literally, but also figuratively. I mean, Edna's not a villain. She isn't. uh, And she's not a pathetic character. Uh, You know, she's likable. There's no one that that doesn't like her. Edna is a realistic character, but she vacillates all the time through illusion to reality, back to illusion I mean, she's uncovering things that haven't been real for her, and she's understanding that. But then she constructs things that are totally fake, like this life in the pigeon house and her relationship with Robert. Unpacking Edna is seeing a real-life struggle. Chopin's evolutionary character awakens uh, from a very female, not a male life, not a neutered life, but a female life. And she, we have this complexity, and it derives from realities that are unique to women. And they're unique to women specifically in this reality of the turn of the century. But the social, the cultural, all those implications aside, in universal terms, you know, there are other things to consider. And this relationship with Robert is one of them. What does it mean for Edna to be in love with Robert? Because to love someone in a general sense, you know, is something we all do. People love in all cultures, and we always have in all times around the world. You know, for a woman to love a man as she claims to love Robert, well, I want to ask Edna, what does that mean to you? Is she saying she desires to have a life with him? Does she want to take on a responsibility to bring this man happiness? Does she want good things for him? This is what I find so confusing. Because Edna doesn't seem to be wanting to do those kinds of things for anyone. So in what sense, sweet Edna, are you in love? Or there's this other thing. Should we just not take her at her word at all when she says, I'm in love with Robert? (laughs) Mm, Well, do we take anyone at their word when they are, uh, quote, in love? (laughs) Uh, Of course, when, when she's asked to describe what she means... Uh, she describes this, really the biochemical addiction we all feel when we can't get enough of another person. I, I noticed that, too. That experience is overwhelming for anyone, and Chopin has gone to a lot of trouble to show us that Edna has never been in love before. You know, Edna is a woman who recently just turned on to her own feelings, and turning on our feelings is important, and uh, it is very sad that it was so long and happening for her, but... Contrary to popular opinion, uh, I want to say that feelings are good, actually. You know, to experience feelings is not a sign of weakness. And uh, not taking into account her feelings is what really got her into a loveless marriage to begin with. We have to learn 
to incorporate our emotions if we're going to live a life as a whole individual, you know, or as I like to say, a person with no dead spots. And She's had dead spots. Edna has lived from her childhood onward with lots of dead spots. And uh, this has handicapped her in so many ways. And in this case, what does it mean for Edna, in Edna's mind, to love Robert LeBrun, uh, what does it mean if he loves her? I mean, I'm not sure the relationship between these two is even what is important for Chopin. It appears to be the backdrop of a larger issue. And because love is not the end game for Edna, passion was the catalyst to her awakening, uh, to be sure. But the relationship between Edna and Robert is not a Romeo and Juliet type story. I mean, the awakening is definitely not a love story. No, and that's true. And, you know, Madame Reese recognizes that as well. I mean, Madame Reese calls Edna Machien in chapter 26. Uh, and then she asks, why do you love him when you ought not? So you're going to test my French, aren't you? <laughs> What does the term Marien, why does that draw your attention? <laughs> because it means my queen. And that seems to be more in line with Edna wants instead of a relationship with Robert Lebrun. What has Edna discovered in this world? Well, she's discovered that she does not, you know, she is not the natural woman mother. She's discovered that she's not all that awesome. She doesn't, she doesn't really want the life of being this artist woman. You know, in some sense... I talked about this last episode. She's trying out what it means to be a man in some ways. And she does manly things as, as are defined in her world. But really, I think what she wants is to be a woman queen, a mahien. That's a nice role. I'd like to be that, too. <laughs> uh, uh, not a Disney princess. No, heck no. Mother queen. But here's Edna's problem. Uh, she's not prepared, nor does she seem creative enough to invent this new role for herself in the actual real world in which she lives. It doesn't seem like she can conceptualize what it is that she even wants. This illusion of a mother queen will be the model from here to the end of the book. The thing is, it's a model, but it's not real. Edna creates an illusion. In fact, this whole book could be seen really as a discussion on illusion versus reality, what did Edna awaken to, if not to understand that her entire life in some sense, or at least her marriage up to that point, had been some inauthentic illusion that she didn't like, uh, except look what she's doing in response to awakening to that. She's building a different illusion. For example, this relationship with Robert, is it anything except an illusion? You know, Edna doesn't need a fantasy. No, uh, she doesn't. She needs hope. Um, she needs to see her own potential, um, a creative uh, vision of what she can become and something she would like to become, you know, if not a mother, if not an artist, if not a horse racer, if not a socialite, then what? You know, pick something. Well, exactly. And in Chapter 27, Edna says this, Don't you know the weather prophet has told us what we shall see the sun pretty soon? And that stands out to me. For one thing, it just was out of nowhere. Why is she saying that? But the sun is a very ancient and universal symbol. So when I see characters speak to archetypal symbols in ways that don't make sense in the chronology of the story, you have to wonder, was there a symbolic reason for this? And so you think, well, what's the sun traditionally represent? Well, it represents hope. It represents creativity. It's a male archetype, by the way, for whatever reason. But the sun <laughs> represents energy. If you remember, Edna can only paint in the sun. But in a sense, that's exactly right for all of us. We can only create things in the sun. In other words, we can only move forward when we have hope in our life. The sun gives us life. Without the sun, we live in darkness. Without the sun, we have no hope. So where am I going with this? Edna is wrestling with finding hope. But that seems problematic for various reasons, one of them being she can't even decide in her own mind if she's a good person or a bad person. Listen to what she says to Arabin. I'm going to pull myself together for a while and think. Try to determine what character of a woman I am, for candidly, I don't know. By all the codes which I am acquainted with, I am a devilish, wicked specimen of the sex. But some way I can't conceive myself that I am. I must think about it. It's in that line that I think, you know, Chopin enraptures a lot of female readers, by the way. I want to read it again. 
by all the codes which I am acquainted with. I am a devilish, wicked specimen of the sex, but some way I can't convince myself that I am. I must think about it. In other words, the world tells me that I'm a bad person because I'm not conforming properly to this, that, or the other. I'm not doing these right things. But something inside of me defies that, and I don't think that's true. I don't feel that I'm devilish. But I'm told that I am, and so I arrive at this you know, social disconnect. Well, indeed. Uh, isn't it interesting that it is here at this point that Edna revisits something that Madame Reese has apparently told her previously, but we are only getting to see in this context after this confession. It says this, When I left her today, she put her arms around me and felt my shoulder blades to see if my wings were strong, she said. The bird that would soar above the level plane of tradition and prejudice must have strong wings. It is a sad spectacle to see the weaklings bruised, exhausted, and fluttering back to earth. Well, I agree. I mean, that's one of the more famous books, uh, famous quotes in the book. But what kind of bird is Edna? I mean, Madame Reese is not using language that suggests Edna is this kind of woman. She's actually challenging her to be that kind of woman with strong wings. She's saying if Edna wants to have a certain outcome, she's got to display, you know, these characteristics. But right after that, in response to this, you know, after she tells Arabin this, what does she do? She kisses him passionately, and this is what she, the text says. It was the first kiss of her life to which her nature had really responded. It was a flaming torch that kindled desire. Chopin is very delicate in how she expresses this sex scene. Uh, the entire chapter, of course, is very short. and I mean, this is very different than how Shonda Rhimes might go about it if she were created an episode in Bridgerton, for sure. Above all, there was understanding. She felt as if a mist had been lifted from her eyes, enabling her to look upon and comprehend the significance of life that monster made up of beauty and brutality, but among the conflicting sensations which assailed her, there was neither shame nor remorse. There was a dull pang of regret because it was not the kiss of love which had inflamed her, because it was not love which had held this cup of life to her lips. That's not a very long chapter. <laughs> and I know this is not the majority view here, but this is not only Edna asserting independence by pursuing this whatever this relationship is with Arabin, But this is Edna, again, running into another illusion. From here, she immediately moves out of Leonce's house, but she won't leave without running up a crazy expensive bill with this lavish dinner party. Arabin calls it a coup d'etat. It will be day after tomorrow. Why do you call it the coup d'etat? Oh, it will be very fine. All of my best of everything... Crystal, silver and gold, sovereigns, flowers, music, and champagne to swim in. I'll let Leonce pay the bills. I wonder what he'll say when he sees the bills. <laughs> you know, this dinner party is very strange. I mean, for a book so short, why would so many pages be devoted to a dinner party that's essentially meaningless in terms of this plot? Oh, I know. We just read that really, really short chapter about this implied sex scene. And then the next one is this dinner party. And it's very, very long. One critic pointed out, I read this, it is literally the longest sustained episode in the entire novel. <laughs> so why? I mean, it, it doesn't develop a plot. It doesn't develop any characters. And nothing provocative is uttered. I mean, what's going on? Well, it's a birthday party. And remember, meals are never just meals in literature, not in movies, not in books. In fact, you know, food is never just food. It's almost always symbolic. Food's essential to life. In fact, it is life. But meals are essential to community. They just don't symbolize fellowship. They are fellowship. I mean, today, we had a party with our family. It was a meal. This Thursday night, we're going to celebrate our, our niece Lauren's graduation. How are we going to do this? We're going to have a meal together. Meals are bonding. With that in mind, notice how many meals are consumed in this story, and that's unusual. So what's with the dinner Edna's holding? I mean, her family isn't even there. Her husband isn't there. 
Adele, her closest friend, isn't there. Many, you know, literary critics have suggested, and I think there's validity to this, so that's why I'm bringing it up, that Chopin is creating a parody of Jesus' Last Supper. Edna has invited and selected 12 guests to join her on her birthday party. There's irony there, of course, two don't show up. And in some sense, it's not just a day. She's turning 29. And this is the day that she sees herself being reborn, another birthday. She's celebrating her departure. But unlike, you know, Jesus's humble meal in the upper room before his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, Edna is going high dollar. I mean, she sits at that table presiding over her dinner guests. And by the way, they all have a magnificent time. She wears a cluster of diamonds that she just received from her husband, by the way. There's a specially designed cocktail her father invented for her sister's wedding that she refused to attend. There are multiple courses. Everyone has a very special chair. Everything is queenly. Let's read the description of Edna. The golden shimmer of Edna's satin gown spread in rich folds on either side of her. There was a soft fall of lace encircling her shoulders. It was the color of her skin without the glow, the myriad living tints that one may sometimes discover in vibrant flesh. There was something in her attitude, in her whole appearance, when she leaned her head against the high-backed chair and spread her arms, which suggested the regal woman, the one who rules, who looks on, who stands alone. The regal woman. Madame Reese is not a miss on her way out at the end of the party. She says, Bonne nuit, Marianne, soyez sage. Translate, Good night, my queen. Be wise. <laughs> Well, you've made your case. Uh, she is playing the part of the queen. Uh, but who are the other people in the charade? I mean, specifically, why is Mrs. Highcamp there, who we know she doesn't like, and why is she weaving a garland of yellow and red roses and laying it over Victor? And, you know, according to Chopin, uh, transforming Victor into a vision of oriental beauty. I mean, <laughs> his cheeks, the color of crushed grapes, and his dusty eyes glowed with a languishing fire. Uh, after that, she drapes a uh, white silk scarf on him. It's just weird. And a little pagan feeling. I mean, uh, you know, nothing like the Lord's Supper of the Bible if you were trying to make that comparison. No, it, it sounds something more akin to what you'd read in mythology. It's very opposite. That's why critics say it's a parody of the Last Supper. It's imitating. It's not recreating. And it, you know, it does kind of feel pagan to me. I mean, Edna is a queen, but she still has no stated purpose. I mean, she's not trying to be Jesus, sacrificing her life for the sins of the world. Another moment of parody is when Victor, you know, you could say Judas-like, quickly falls out of favor and betrays her by singing this song that Edna associates with Robert, uh, and he shut down pretty quickly. The chapters that follow, we're going to see Leon's saving face, because it's slightly embarrassing when your wife moves out, but he saves face by remodeling the house as a way of explaining Edna's odd behavior to the community, and Edna feels happy about what she's done. And these are all feelings. But, and let me quote here, every step which she took to relieving herself from obligations added to her strength and expansion as an individual. She began to look with her own eyes to see and to apprehend the deeper undercurrents of life. You know, this idea of awakening to something. Again, Chopin never gets far away from this idea that Edna is trying to understand for herself what is real. And she does this by stripping down. It's an image we're going to see. She's continually stripping down layer after layer after layer until the end of the book when she's, you know, totally naked. <laughs> and, and yet the text never clarifies exactly what it is that Edna is learning about the world and herself. I mean, uh, she draws no conclusions. There are no provisions. It takes on no responsibilities you know, reality is an immovable thing. It's just not something we simply escape. It's just not possible. No, it isn't. And I'm not sure Edna understands that. <laughs> I mean, she visits her children and she weeps when she sees them. Let me quote here. Because she sent them off, remember, to, to mm -hmm. the grandparents. And she goes and she visits them. It says this. 
She lived with them a whole week long, giving them all of herself and gathering and filling herself with their young existence. I mean, she's going to tell them about the pigeon house. Uh, but, you know, in all their excitement, the kids get real, more real than her very quickly because they ask her things that are normal. They ask her, where are they going to sleep? Where's Papa going to sleep? And Edna's answers betray that she is unwilling to problem solve. Let me quote her response to her kids when they ask for that. This is what she says. The fairies would fix it all right. (laughs) (laughs) I wish they'd fix things for my life. You know, Edna rejects reality over and over again. And she responds with fantasy at at every point. And uh, Madame Ratignolle recognizes that. In chapter 33... She pays Edna a visit at the pigeon house, and she asks about the dinner party, and she warns her about her behavior with Arabin, but she also makes Edna promise that when the baby comes, that Edna would come be a part of the delivery. Before leaving, she says this to Edna, In some ways, you seem to me like a child, Edna. You seem to act without a certain amount of reflection, which is necessary in this life. And it is necessary in this life. Yeah, I mean, Odell gets it. And, and she's referring, of course, to whatever is going on with Arabin. But really, it's the relationship with Robert that's the epitome of Edna's fantasy life. As long as Robert is flirting like he did on the island with no goal, you know, Edna is in love with him. On Grand Isle, they share a meal together. And we didn't talk about this a lot because we just didn't have time. But that was a very significant moment for them. They talk about spirits on the island. They talk about pirates. I mean, she loves all that. But here in New Orleans, it's not, you know, spirits and pirates anymore. Robert approaches Edna with the desire to be honest. And she rejects it. The text says that in some way... Robert seemed nearer to her off in Mexico than when he stood in her presence and she had touched his hand. After Edna's birthday, by the way, I want to point this out, there are no more communal meals. Edna eats alone. There's no more fellowship at this point, really, with anyone. I mean, there is the episode when she invites Robert to eat, you know, with her at this little restaurant they end up at called Katish, but Edna requests a plate. She puts food in front of him, but he doesn't eat a morsel. He walks her home. He comes inside. Edna kisses him. He confesses his love. He's tormented because Edna's not free. It's actually a pretty interesting exchange. Let's read that really quickly. You be Robert. I'll be Edna. Okay. Something put into my head that you cared for me and I lost my senses. I forgot everything but a wild dream of you some way becoming my wife. Your wife? Religion, loyalty, everything would give way if only you cared. Then you must have forgotten that I was Leon's Pontelier's wife. Oh, I was demented, uh, dreaming of wild, impossible things, recalling men who had set their wives free. We've heard of such things. Yes, we have heard of such things. You know, there's a little bit more back and forth, but we finally get to Edna's line. She says this, You have been a very foolish boy, wasting your time dreaming of impossible things when you speak of Mr. Pontelier setting me free. I am no longer one of Mr. Pontelier's possessions to dispose of or not. I give myself where I choose. If he were to say, here, Robert, take her and be happy. She is yours. I should laugh at you both. Of course, he he responds with, what do you mean? He has no idea what Edna's even talking about. Well, of course he doesn't. I mean, and this is where a plot complication intervenes and makes things even more interesting. This conversation is interrupted when Madame Ratignolle's servant comes in to tell Edna that Adele is having her baby. So Edna just leaves Robert. She says this to Robert. I love you. Only you. No one but you. It was you who awoke me last summer out of a lifelong stupid dream. And of course we have this thing where Edna begs. No, I mean not Edna begs. Robert begs Edna. 
And this is a real role revolver because traditionally, you know, women beg the men to stay and the men have to go, that kind of thing. But not Queen Edna. I mean, he begs her to stay. Don't go to Adele. He's the damsel in distress here in reverse. But she's going to pull away, promising to return, leaves him. And let me quote, she leaves him longing to hold and keep her. The birth scene that's going to follow is very important, and I think it's very symbolic in many ways. It's also this return to a very feminine, a very female reality. I mean, is there anything more real in this world than bringing new life into the world? This birth scene reminds readers that this story is uniquely female because This is one way men and women engage the world differently. And there is no way around this. Motherhood and fatherhood. I'm not saying one is more important than the other, but I am saying they're just not the same. And Edna goes to Adele and she begins to kind of feel something along these lines. It makes her feel uneasy. Let's read this paragraph from chapter 37. Edna began to feel uneasy. She was seized with a vague dread. Her own like experiences seemed far away, unreal, and only half-remembered. She recalled faintly an ecstasy of pain, the heavy odor of chloroform, a stupor which had deadened sensation, and an awakening to find a little new life to which she had given being added to the great unnumbered multitude of souls that come and go. She began to wish that she had not come. Her presence was not necessary. She might have invented a pretext for staying away. She might even invent a pretext now for going. But Edna did not go. With an inward agony, with a flaming, outspoken revolt against the ways of nature, she witnessed the scene of torture. She was still stunned and speechless with emotion when later she leaned over her friend to kiss her and softly say goodbye. Adele, pressing her cheek, whispered in an exhausted voice, "'Think of the children, Edna,' Oh, think of the children. Remember them. You know, on the surface, it seems that Adele is hoping to inspire Edna to resume her role as as a woman mother. And on the surface, it seems that Edna is battling social conventions and her own sensuality. I know. And I think that is definitely a part of it. I mean, the whole experience leaves her dazed. I mean, she recollects, you know, her own experience giving birth. Some people even think that she's pregnant and there's some sort of allusion to that. But they, they may be pushing it. Anyway. The doctor walks her home, and, and I want to quote, Oh, well, I don't know that it matters after all. One has to think of the children sometime or other. The sooner the better. The whole conversation is interesting. Let's just go back and let's review. Let's read this conversation between the doctor and Edna as they walk home. When is Leonce coming back? Quite soon, sometime in March. Are you going abroad? Perhaps, uh, no, I'm not going. I'm not going to be forced into doing things. I don't want to go abroad. I want to be let alone. Nobody has any right, except children perhaps, and even then it seems to me, or it did seem, she felt that her speech was voicing the incoherency of her thoughts and stopped abruptly. The trouble is, sighed the doctor, grasping her meaning intuitively, that youth is given to up to illusions. It seems to be a provision of nature, a decoy to secure mothers for the race. And nature takes no account of moral consequences or arbitrary conditions which we create and which we feel obliged to maintain at any cost. Yes, she said, the years that are gone seem like dreams, if one might go on sleeping and dreaming. But to wake up and find, oh, well, perhaps it is better to wake up after all, even to suffer rather than to remain a dupe to illusions all one's life. It seems to me, my dear child, said the doctor at parting, holding her hand, you seem to me to be in trouble. I'm not going to ask for your confidence. I will only say that if you ever feel moved to give it to me, perhaps I might help you. I know I would understand, and I tell you there are not so many who would. Not many, my dear. Some way I don't feel moved to speak of things that trouble me. Don't think I'm ungrateful or that I don't appreciate your sympathy. There are periods of despondency and suffering which take possession of me, but I don't want anything but my own way. That is wanting a good deal, of course, when you have to trample upon the lives and the hearts and the prejudice of others. But no matter, still, I shouldn't want to trample on the little lives. Oh, I don't know what I'm saying, doctor. Good night. Don't blame me for anything. 
You mean you can see Edna cannot articulate her own thoughts, not even inside her head, not even to the doctor. But this concept of motherhood, obviously, it's troubling her. I mean, she remembers Odell's voice. Think of the children. Think of them. And and, and all these things are confusing to her in her mind. And so what does she do? Uh, she's going to think of them tomorrow. <laughs> I mean, she meant to think of them. That ter- determination had driven into her soul like a death wound. But not tonight. Tomorrow would be time to think of everything. Because she knows Robert is waiting for her. But when she gets inside the pigeon house, there is no Robert. He left a note and he says, I love you. Goodbye because I love you. And this is interesting because at this point, Edna grows faint. It said she uttered no words. And she stayed up that entire night, apparently just staring at this flickering lamp. Now, let me point out again, what does sun, what does light represent? It represents hope. And hers is flickering. (laughs) Well, you know, speaking in just a general sense, um, we are co-creators of our reality. I mean, our circumstances uh, prescribe lots of things, but... We create out of those circumstances, and we know it. And since we know this, uh, no person can run away from their own innate moral obligation to live up to whatever potential that we have inside of us. And uh, whatever we determine that to be, we can't run away from that reality. And no matter how hard we try to put it off until tomorrow, I mean, that sense of obligation to create something out of our lives is inside of us. And uh, we can't run from it because it's not coming from outside of us. And Edna, in all of her confusion, and she's very confused about a lot of things, at various points in this book, she never wavers about that. I mean, she clearly says uh, early on in the book that she understood herself to have an obligation first and foremost to herself. But what is that obligation? Uh, is it for her? What is it for everyone? I mean, uh, she must meet her own potential, and we can't fail at that. It, you know, if we're failing at that, that's where despair sets in and gets us. And Edna looks at certain realities in her life and awakens to an awareness that she doesn't want to face. And she sees obligations in her future, uh, not opportunities. And she doesn't want tomorrow to come, but not going to bed does not put off the morning from arriving. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And at the end of the book, this is where we're at, it circles back to where we started, Grand Isle. Except this is not the Grand Isle of the summer. I know I'm talking archetypally and symbolically, but, you know, spring represents new birth, summer represents youth, fall represents adulthood and maturity. She goes back to Grand Isle. It's still there, but the women from the summer resort are gone. The place is barren. The sun and the warmth is not there either. Edna returns to find Victor there. She arrives, and he's been telling Maria Kita all about her birthday party. He's described Edna, and I want to quote Victor here. He describes Edna as being Venus rising from the foam. If you remember from your Roman mythology, Venus is the goddess of love, and it's said that she emerged fully grown from the ocean foam. So read into that what you will. I told you, this thing gets you know metaphorical and <laughs> mythological towards mm-hmm. the end of the book. But Edna asks Victor to prepare a meal of fish for her. A meal. Let me bring that in. She then leaves Victor for the beach for a swim in the ocean. Again, more symbols. If you recall, it was at this place where she had her first swim, her first introduction, her first new birth. This is where she experienced her first awakening. But when she goes back to the beach this time, it's dreary and deserted. I want to read the thoughts of Edna's head because Edna's head is interesting. She had said it over and over to herself. Today it is Arabins. Tomorrow it will be someone else. It makes no difference to me. It doesn't matter about Leon's Pontelier, but Raoul and Etienne. Now remember, that's the names of her kids. She understood now clearly what she had meant a long time ago when she had said to Adele Reptignon that she would give up the unessential, but she would never sacrifice herself for her children. 
Despondency had come upon her there in the wakeful night and had never lifted. There was no one thing in the world that she desired. There was no human being whom she wanted near her except Robert. And she even realized that the day would come when he too, and the thought of him would melt out of her existence, leaving her alone. The children appeared before her like antagonists who had overcome her, who had overpowered and sought to drag her into the soul's slavery for the rest of her days. But she knew a way to elude them. She was not thinking of these things when she walked down to the beach. I mean, it's really interesting, all that. Uh, It's interesting if you like a lot of nihilism. Uh, Edna has found nothing that excites her passion. There was no one thing that she desired. And that's the line that really stands out to me. And because desire is the fuel of human behavior, it's where we see our potential. And this is a huge expression of someone who's given up all desire to have responsibility for anyone or anything. Uh, And it is unthinking here. She's completely detached. I mean, to a degree that's actually shocking. I mean, I see why this book unsettled so many people uh, early on. And uh, we don't want to believe people can detach like this. And we know it's dangerous, actually. What is dangerous? I mean, she wades out into this ocean, and the ocean is seductive. I mean, it whispers, it clamors, it murmurs. That's quotes from the book. It invites her soul to want in the abyss of solitude. Edna looks up to see a bird with a broken wing beating the air above and falling down, disabled to the water. She then takes off all of her clothes and stands naked in the open air at the mercy of the sun. Notice how many symbols I am reading in this text. (laughs) That was a lot. With the waves inviting her to come in, and so she does. Now, you read this last final page. The foamy wavelets curled up to her white feet and coiled like serpents around her ankles. She walked out. The water was chill, but she walked on. The water was deep, but she lifted her white body and reached out with a long, sweeping stroke. The touch of the sea is sensuous, enfolding the body in its soft, close embrace. She went on and on. She remembered the night she swam far out and recalled the terror that seized her at the fear of being unable to regain the shore. She did not look back now, but went on and on, thinking of the bluegrass meadow that she had traversed when a little child, believing it had had no beginning and no end. Her arms and legs were growing tired. She thought of Leonce and the children. They were a part of her life, but they need not have thought that they could possess her body and soul. How Mademoiselle Reese would have laughed, perhaps sneered, if she knew. And you call yourself an artist. What pretensions, madam? The artist must possess the courage soul that defies and dares. Exhaustion was pressing upon and overpowering her. Goodbye, because I love you. He did not know. He did not understand. He would never understand. Perhaps Dr. Mandalay would have understood if she had seen him, but it was too late. The shore was far behind her, and her strength was gone. She looked into the distance, and the old terror flamed up for an instant, then sank again. Edna heard her father's voice and her sister Margaret's. She heard the barking of an old dog that was chained to the sycamore tree. The spurs of the cavalry officer clanged as he walked across the porch, there was the hum of bees, and the musky odor of pinks filled the air. The end. <laughs> now, I want to point out a couple of things. You notice right away, the sea is a serpent about her ankle. Now, most of us in the Western tradition think of a serpent as a symbol for the devil, and that's true. It's that in the book of Genesis for sure. But that is not the only time we see a serpent in the Bible. In the book of Exodus, the Israelites in the desert look up to a serpent on a stick for healing. Archetypally, a servant, a serpent, not a servant, a serpent is a symbol for rebirth. Well, Edna retreats into her thoughts of her childhood, which reminds me that Edna has no mother. I mean, honestly, she does not. This does not read like a suicide to me. And I know I'm going against a widely held. Co- <laughs> belief about this book 
I, for one, think Chopin leaves it completely open-ended. I mean, can we even be sure that Edna even dies? I mean, Chopin ends this book entirely unresolved, and that's the disturbing part of it. Well, I know, and it hinges on what you want to do with this ocean. I want you to say there isn't a consensus. Scholars have zero consensus on what this meaning ends, this ending means. Let me reverse my words there. Oceans, symbolically, by the way, are sources of self-awareness. They are, like I've said, they're symbols of rebirth. But what's jarring about this ending is that there is nothing in Edna's characterization at any point to suggest that Edna wants a beginning or even that she understands what ending means. Edna doesn't search for closure on anything in her life. Not one time in the story does she finish anything. She doesn't even finish stories that she tells her children. Edna is not just rejecting society's roles for herself. She seems to be rejecting herself as an individual as she is here. But here's what I'm the question. Do these final images of her childhood suggest what do they suggest? I mean, she goes back to her childhood, but is she wanting to do it over or is she just giving up? Well, here's my two cents worth on that. I mean, you, <laughs> when ending a good song, every musician knows that you create closure uh, by resolving the tension in the music. And non-musicians may not know that, but they feel it when it happens, when music doesn't resolve, and they feel the tension created by that. And, you know, for instance, try ending a song on the five chord. Um, and for a woman with such a keen sense of music, it seems Chopin purposely leaves this this song unresolved. I mean, there's no funeral, nobody on the beach, not even any thoughts of exit in Edna's mind. I mean, there's nothing. Instead, Edna is focused on all the repeating elements, uh, you know, of her own life story, and it's totally directionless ending. <laughs> well, I think that's some of what people love about the book. I mean, it's messy, it's unresolved, it's realistic. But, you know, it's also, like I said, it's mythical. You know, I'm going to say this. If we want to, we can finish the story in our own minds the way we want. We can either kill her off or revive her. She can either sink into further illusion or maybe she wakens up one final time in that ocean to a creative reality and swims off. The central motif of this book is this idea of sleeping and waking. I mean, it goes on the entire time. And maybe that's where, you know, we can find ourselves. Hopefully, obviously, a much lesser degree than Edna. But the messiness of life sets in when we find ourselves oscillating between waking up to one reality and then further diluting ourselves into something else, into some other lost point in our life. We make a mess of things. I mean, that's what Chopin says about Edna. That's what she does. We can be forces, as Edna is, from without to circumstances of society or culture. But we're also, you know, victims of, from forces within. Yet, what happens after we jump into the ocean? Do we even dare to? I'm going to say there's a way to read the end of this book positively. I like to think of Edna rising up and finding out she can. She can attach to humans in a way where one person does not consume the essence of the other. She can find that balance in the meaning of her children, in her work, in her art, in society. She can find a way to make peace with the culture she's living in, her community, her own limitations from within and the limitations from without. In my mind, I think there's enough evidence to suggest that there is a, a way that Edna rises out of that foam like Venus. I'm going to use Victor's term here. So... Whether it's realistic or not, I'm going to say, in my mind, Edna comes up a queen, a woman queen. Now, I know I'm adding extensively the text, and that's a terrible, terrible no-no in literature. But hopefully, in my movie version, while underwater, she's listening to all those bees in her head, she's going to come up with a plan. <laughs> Well, you do like to find the silver lining in every storm. I know. Uh, well, thanks for spending time with us today. We hope you enjoyed our final discussion on this very perplexing piece of literature. And uh, next episode, we move from Louisiana up the road to our home state of Tennessee. Woohoo! 
to discuss the music and life of our own Dolly Parton, self-made woman of this generation, uh, who really displays the very idea of local color in her music. We would ask you to please share our podcast with a friend, email or text them a link, share a link on your social media. That's how we grow. You know, visit our website at howtolovelypodcast.com. Get yourself a t-shirt, get yourself a mug, uh, as well as free listening guides for teachers and students of English. We would love to have you along for the ride. Peace out. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 